Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You might actually be the most derivative one of all. I mean, Christ, the same house. Maybe so. But you forgot the first rule of surviving a stab movie. Never answer the... I'm bored. Wait! And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking sunglasses at night. We're talking music video editing. And we're talking, she's that kind of woman. She's... European. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we're talking some sherry on some titties. Oh boy, yes. Don't you just hate it when you're on a casual date and you happen to spill sherry all over your tits and you're like, hmm, better take the top off. And your nipples just like pressing out, just begging to get out of that white t-shirt you're wearing? Yeah, absolutely. Oh God, I- was somebody icing those nibs? What was going on there? <laughs> I had to tell you, so everyone, we were discussing Tony Scott's directorial, de- feature directorial debut, The Hunger, the famed lesbian vampire movie starring Susan Sarandon, David Bowie, and Catherine Deneuve. But Joe, I... I have to say, I'm a little mad because my thing was going to be, she's that kind of woman. She's European. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a fucking good line. <laughs> the delivery, Sarandon's delivery of that line, you're just like, womp, womp. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she is European. Catherine Deneuve is very French. Yes, very, very, very French. I, it's just code for lesbian vampire in this movie. More or less, yeah. More or mm-hmm. less, but... <laughs> Okay, so I think we need to get some estrogen in here, though, because we have a lot to talk about. So, everyone, our guest waiting in the wings is one half of the Spinsters of Horror, also known as the hosts of I Spit in Your Podcast, which is a monthly show in which they discuss horror, cult, and subversive movies with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion. You may have also seen her work at Anatomy of a Scream and Last Girls Club, or you may have heard her co-host on our previous episode on Bride of Chucky. Please welcome Jess of the Spinsters of Horror. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you guys about this film tonight. I am too. So tell us, Jess, what is your connection with The Hunger? Have you like always been in love with this movie or was this like a recent find for you? Um, I have always been in love with this film. Uh, So Kelly and I covered this film on our 
fourth episode of I Spit oh, on wow. Your Podcast. We did okay. the hunger and interview with a vampire. And mm. I had learned a lot of things in that uh, fourth episode. Um, how thirsty Kelly and I both get when we talk about vampires. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I learned about an editing mistake, about making sure I take things out of a podcast that Kelly doesn't make her sound as thirsty as she is. But now, five <laughs> years later, we all know that she's very thirsty. Yeah. But my history with this film is that Kelly showed me this film back in the day, way back in the day, when we were youngins going to Fan Expo in Toronto, when they used to have, yeah, when they used to have the Festival of Fear. And so every year I would go and visit Kelly and we would get together and watch a horror movie together. That was when I was starting my kind of like easing into horror. And obviously, you know, she was big into vampires. I'm big into vampires. And she had this movie on the shelf called The Hunger. And I was like, is that David Bowie? And she's like, yes. I'm like, as a vampire? She's like, yes. I'm Mm -hmm. like, well, then we have to watch this because A, (laughs) we're huge like Labyrinth fans. So we're like, of course. And I watched it and I was just like, literally entranced by this film and i was like i have to own this film and so i spent many years looking for it to have a copy of it for my little vampire collection that i was growing and lo and behold years later at the basement of a bmv in toronto i found it mm-hmm. and i have i love it it's a film that i always go back to time and again and again and i just love seeing it and i love watching it and just it's like a mood <laughs> it is such a mood isn't it right like you know i said in my intro that it's music video editing and obviously anybody who's seen a tony scott film will kind of get a sense of what i'm talking about Mm -hmm. but this movie is gorgeous like it is a vibe kind of film it really is and i I, i'm gonna tell you right now like i I haven't seen all of Tony Scott's filmography, but I, what I have seen, I'm not, I don't love any of Tony Scott's films. I've never been in love with any of them. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, when we first watched this movie, Joe, because everyone, we actually covered this um, before the podcast even began in our article series for Horror Queers back in 2018. Ooh. Yep. This was actually our fourth editorial, Jess. Oh wow, my God. Oh my God, that's <laughs> kismet. But I, I was kind of, I wasn't dreading watching this movie, I, but I wasn't, I wasn't really looking forward to it because I was like, ah, it's Tony Scott. Oh my God, just admit it. Like, the, I reread the article today in, in advance of the recording and like, we were both kind of assholes where we're like, mm, I just don't know about this movie. I've heard a bunch about it. Isn't it just that lesbian vampire movie? With well, okay, Susan but that's Sarandon? not really on, that's not on us. That is on the public society for making this the lesbian vampire movie. True. But, but <laughs> I, 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 truthfully, I had no connection to David. Bowie. I'd never heard any of David Bowie's music until, like, recently. Honestly, it was after he died that I think that I really started to understand who David Bowie was and his importance to the queer community. But, um, anyway, long story short, (laughs) (laughs) I really liked this. I was shocked at how much I enjoyed this. And I I get the complaints or the criticisms of style over substance, but I still think there's enough substance here. Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, I think I'm always a little surprised, always, the two times I've watched this movie, <laughs> I am surprised that the runtime is about an hour 40 because the narrative is a little bit slight. And yet the visuals, while they're doing plenty of heavy lifting, I think that there's enough meat here to make this very memorable on top of, you know, like really solid trio of performances, some interesting vampire lore. I'm a little iffy on the fact that we're dating this back to Egyptian times. Like, I forgot about the scene of Catherine Deneuve as an Egyptian was like, no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but that's a holdover from the source material, the novel it's based right. on. Yeah, but, but, yeah. But it was a conscious decision to cut out whatever extra information that book would give us to just random flashbacks to where they almost seem superfluous to the plot of this film. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like it's just there to give us a sense of time. Oh, she's real old. She's been doing this for a while. And she got wider over time. <laughs> yeah. Apparently so. <laughs> I, every time I finish this movie, I'm just like, oh, I have to go. I want to read the book. And I always remind myself, like, Jessica, look for that book so you can read it because it goes along with like, all the vampire lore that I like to ingest and understand and stuff like that. So I love all these different interpretations of vampires. And I know the book goes more of a science fiction explanation to Miriam's vampirism, which I love. That's okay. I, that's so interesting because I was looking up like differences between the Hunger movie and the Hunger book. And of course, Googling the Hunger anything pulls up everything the Hunger games. And I was like, mm-hmm. God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I found one uh, an article. Well, actually, it was a review of the film and the book, and it was in one of those like academic like things where it's a PDF and you just subscribe. But I got uh-huh. a free article, I guess, and I was like, okay, cool. It, uh, by by this person's metrics, um, the m- movie's better. The first four chapters of the book are really, really, really good, and they only really pull quotes from the first twenty pages of the book. Hmm. And apparently oh, wow. after that, it just all goes downhill. But they they don't really say why other than broad generalizations of, like, character motivations don't make sense. It feels really rushed. But it also reeked up. It didn't go where I wanted it to go. So uh-huh. I, I I would still say read the book. But this person had did not have high opinions of it. Uh-huh. This person who doesn't have a name. <laughs> um, I, I well, because I'm not really. I, I, I would have given them a name if I pulled actual quotes from their article, but none of them were good enough. So I'm not going to give this person a name. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but uh, okay okay so going into this so as i said yes the hunger was tony scott's future directorial debut is a loose adaptation of the 1981 novel of the same name by whitley striber uh again the only big difference is you know it fills in a lot of gaps in the background that the film only suggests in passing like miriam's egyptian past and the fact that as just hinted at earlier um that the vampires are more of an alien race which i found very interesting well, there, there's one other sort of substantial difference, which is that Miriam lives, and she's the one who continues, and she kills Sarah. Well, okay, I meant, like, general differences. I, we'll, we'll get to the ending of this movie. <laughs> yeah, I was supposed to suggest that she's of another species, a species that lives forever. Mm-hmm. Well, and I had a question about that, because a lot of things I read implied that Miriam was choosing not to kill her lovers when she could because she loves them too much oh yeah totally she does not want to let go (laughs) i thought it was a death becomes her situation i was like no no no. even if we dismember them and like spread their body parts all across the world like they are still alive the heads are still conscious and talking Hmm. I feel like we don't have quite enough information to know, but yeah, I definitely lean a little bit more towards Jess's interpretation, which is that she maybe could end it for them, but she chooses not to because she just can't let go. Well, that's real bitchy. I mean, if the shoe fits. (laughs) (laughs) She's a little possessive. She's She's a little all controlling. She's got some fear of death. She doesn't, you know, she doesn't like death around her herself, but she doesn't want to let go of those she loves. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. We just we just forget because it's Catherine Deneuve and we're like so pretty and elegant. Yeah, Basically. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pretty people get away with everything. Haven't we learned anything from the real world? I know. Me all the time, right? Yes. <laughs> European. Um, there is also, um, there's a depiction in the novel that John, the David Bowie character, as he loses his power... All the life force of each of the people he has killed to live off of all these years start to haunt him. So these personalities John has consumed into himself are starting to bleed out, so to speak, uh, starting to leak through and haunt his imagination. Oh, that's interesting. That is interesting, yeah. 
Yeah, we just don't have time for that in this movie. Because... I was going to say, that's kind of a whole other film, though, yeah. if you're going to go that route. Well, and, you know, as much as I like this film, it, it, it's really divided into two, right? We have the John half, and we have mm-hmm. the Sarah half of this movie. And yes. I do empathize more with John because his plight seems kind of more, well, sad and relatable. I like Sarah as a character, but wish we had more time with her. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also difficult when you're kind of switching perspectives to Mm -hmm. a different character about midway through, you know, Sarah's in the first half of the film, but it's like sporadic shots, you know, we're we're introduced to her work colleagues and monkey shit. And then all of a sudden, it's, (laughs) hey, this is now your kind of main protagonist, you want to root for her. Well, I guess it depends on how you feel about Dinov. But well, I feel like she gets like she gets whatever we'll talk about in the plot. But Anyway, so the script came to Tony Scott through Dick Shepard, the president of MGM, uh, though Shepard actually consulted with Alan Parker, the director of such films as Bugsy Malone, Midnight Express, Fame, and Pink Floyd the Wall, uh, because he didn't trust Tony Scott, because Tony Scott was only known at this time for his work in commercials. But they were very stylish, they were very artsy, and so uh, at the end of the day, he wound up going with Tony Scott. The film is set in New York. They couldn't shoot there because of the budget. They got a good deal to shoot in London. So they did that uh, with the New York filming pretty much relegated to exterior shots to make it look like we're actually in New York City. I mean, fair. The vast majority of this film does take place indoors. Yeah, exactly. It's that house, right? The house and the mm-hmm. lab and this weird restaurant with a pool in it. <laughs> I oh, love the pool yeah. restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I also can't speak to, to speak to how close it is to this film, but in the commentary on the Blu-ray, Tony Scott says that this film was inspired by Nicholas Roeg's first movie, 1970s Performance, which stars James Fox as a violent and ambitious Lon- London gangster who, after killing an old friend, goes into hiding at the home of a reclusive rock star played by none other than Mick Jagger. Who has purportedly had sexual relations with David Bowie. Uh, who has had sexual relations with Susan Sarandon. Okay, you know what? We have unlocked a conspiracy here. Uh, (laughs) No, it was so funny because in the IMDb tree for this, it was like in an interview with Daily Beast in 2014, Susan Sarandon admitted to having an affair with David Bowie. And I was like, well, I'm going to check that really quick because I don't trust the IMDb trivia. Um, Mm -mm. Nope, I found that uh, that interview and um, she definitely does say David Bowie. I fucked David Bowie. (laughs) Wow. You know what? Good for them. This would have been, because uh, I'm, I'm assuming it's during the making of this, but it would have been a year before she ha- she had her first marriage to um, uh, the Murray guy. Oh, okay. Hmm. But no, I digress. Um, I did want to mention a fun connection to last week's film, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, when it comes to the score for this film. Because while we do have two composers credited on this film... And that's Mike, uh, Michelle Rubini and Denny Yeager. Um, they had like a synthesizer score with some electronics by David Lawson. We also have a, in this case, a musical director because Tony Scott wanted to create a score largely using classical music. So while mm-hmm. we don't have a composer, like a composer doing all that, we have someone in charge of that. And if you all listen to our episode last week, uh, we couldn't find a composer for Sacred Deer because there was none. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh. But um, anyway, The Hunger was released on April 29th, 1983, against fellow newcomers Something Wicked This Way Comes and Valley Girl. It opened in the number five spot behind those two films, as well as Flashdance and Tootsie. It only got $1.8 million, eventually going on to grow $6 million domestically, and a whopping $9,000 overseas. Which, Oof. yeah. Okay. 
I do not know the budget of this film. I could not find the budget anywhere. So um, I, I would imagine, because I feel like I've always seen this film referred to as a uh, disappointment. I don't know if it was an outright flop, but the critical bashing was so, well, we'll get to that in a minute, but it, I don't think this was a success for anyone involved. Hmm. Well, I mean, I think one of the things that you and I glommed onto when we did that editorial was that it's not just that the film is perceived as a bit of a financial flop, but it's like, it just didn't get spoken about unless you were working within certain communities. Like, I think this film has a different reputation among queer audiences and maybe mm-hmm. horror audiences. But I think to the population at large, it was just kind of that artsy lesbian vampire movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to think of when I first heard about it. I mean, look, it, it had enough of a reputation to get a sci-fi, I'm sorry, not sci-fi, um, a an anthology TV series spinoff that aired on Showtime in the States, and I want to say the movie channel in Canada, but it was it was like a Tales from the Crypt type thing, but it was only two seasons, but David Bowie was like the Crypt Keeper-esque host of the second season. Oh, that's wild. Right? And Tony Scott actually directed the premiere episode of the first season. So, I mean, like, I've never heard of this. <laughs> I feel like I've, I know I've seen that in the wild. Like, when I was a kid in, like, a Walmart video store seeing, like, a DVD mm-hmm. of, like, The Hunger Season 2. And I'm like, that's mm-hmm. David Bowie. Because I knew David Bowie from Labyrinth because I was still young. But, oh, wow, that's so cool. Yeah. It, it, right, right. The, this movie, But I, I think that that is a testament to the film's enduring cult status because joe as you said those two audiences also apparently the goth audience which maybe has mm. crossover oh. with horror <laughs> <laughs> jazz would you like to comment <laughs> <laughs> this movie is very gothic very gothy and yes very popular among the gothy dark vampire lesbian ladies <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> you hear bahas bell and ghosties dead playing in any lesbian woman's area and we're like uh-huh yes <laughs> good times <laughs> It's like every lesbian has to have a vinyl of that song in their apartment at all times. I mean, it's a fucking good song, too. Undead, undead, undead. That's what I got out of that song. Um, But who did not like this movie um, were many critics of the uh, at the time. Uh, So granted, on Rotten Tomatoes, we're looking at a 56% with an average score of 5.7 out of 10. The film received mixed reviews. With criticism going toward its pacing, its plot, heavy on atmosphere, um, I, I know I know we don't like to give a lot of airtime to Ebert because his opinions on ho- most horror movies suck, but he called this an agonizingly bad vampire movie, which I would maybe understand that if he backed it up more, but his review, which is fairly brief, consists of him talking about the lesbian sex scene. Wow. I'm sitting here like my eyes popped out of my head. I'm like, has he not seen Blood Rain? That's a terrible vampire movie. <laughs> well, he hadn't seen it in 1983. <laughs> true, 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 true. But I'm sitting there just thinking of like all the worst horrible vampire movies out there and be like, oh my God, why? Well, well I the other too- weird thing is that like at this point, we would have had a bunch of hammer horror that would have dealt, mm-hmm. frankly, quite explicitly with lesbian vampires. Exactly. And granted, yes, those are more often European and maybe they hadn't crossed the pond. But like when you watch this, it does feel like it's a little tepid about its vampirism, like the movie doesn't even want to say vampire. Mm-hmm. And yet, I think to say that, to me, belittles... Well, I, I sent you this in a text message, Trace. It feels like it's very straight male energy to be yes. like, this vampire movie isn't very vampire 
let me talk to you about the sex scene. Well, I mean, granted, he does say there's no story there, but he doesn't go on to really talk about it. He mentions it's like a throwaway line. I'm like, dude, like, what, what, what is Where wrong is with this review? Movie? Yeah, like, give me the review. And, and what's funny is, though, we're talking about Hammer Horror. British critics specifically were very, very mean to this movie, which is because huh. I, Tony Scott's British. And you know what it reminds me of is the reception to um, Michael Powell and Peeping Tom in Britain, because mm. it was harsher over there than it was in the States. Right. But, I mean, he, he talks about how reading the reviews for this movie, so they called it artsy, esoteric, and self-indulgent. And I love... Yes. Why are those bad things? <laughs> well, so, esoteric, because admittedly, I will not lie, I did not know what that word meant, and so I looked it up. And <laughs> it's just a fancy way of saying it's not for me, or this is, I'm not the built-in audience for this movie. Yeah, it, it's like a finite thing. You know, certain people will appreciate it. I maybe am not one of them. Uh-huh. Which... That, to me, is weird to use as a critique against something. <laughs> because it's bad criticism. Yeah. <laughs> Agree. Yeah, 100%. It's just a fancy word. <laughs> well, nevertheless, because of the reception for this movie, Tony Scott was not able to make another film for three years, uh, which would, of course, go on to be Top Gun. So he, he saved mm. himself. <laughs> but he didn't read reviews for any of his films again until Man on Fire in 2004. Oh, and he got good reviews for that one, so he was safe. Um, they were mixed, but the, fun- the funny thing is the only reason he read a review is because someone said, oh, don't read A.O. Scott's New York Times review of this movie. And he was at a hotel, and the, 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 the New York Times was just on the coffee table, and he was like, I was like an addict, and I had to read it. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, um, Letterbox users, nevertheless, have given it a much higher 7 out of 10 average rating, so at least we have that. Mm. Yeah, that seems a little more on par with what I would expect. I think. I mean, I think it's, you know, contemporary, you know, just uh, uh, reappraisals, reappraisals. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so that's that's all I got. There was not really any drama in the making of this movie. Um, and Susan Sarandon is on the commentary, but it's one of those ones where um, they clearly recorded Scott and Sarandon in separate times, and they just spliced their audio together. Ah, uh, okay. Mm. I know. I hate that. Well, you can't get everything. Mm-mm. Okay, so this movie begins with the credits playing, but we're kind of intercutting with scenes where the camera is perched behind a grate looking into a blue lit club because this movie is nothing if not blue. Which is surprising given how green and orange Tony Scott would lean into in the latter part of his career. I mean, I think what we're discovering is that he liked a certain kind of color palette, right? Very much so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we're seeing the lead singer of the Bauhaus. Nope. So we're seeing the lead singer of the Bauhaus. Why, Jeff, Is it just why that? I, I think it's just that? Bauhaus. Bauhaus. <laughs> Bauhaus. Yeah. Bauhaus. Bauhaus. Okay. Bauhaus. So we're seeing the lead singer of the Bauhaus, uh, Peter Murphy. He is singing Bella Lugosi's Dead. And amidst this, we're also seeing strobe lights flashing, people dancing. It's a very interesting mix. Like, you could call this kind of new wave in terms of the way people's hair is styled. But then we're also getting kind of retro 40s sort of dominatrix kinkwear, like lots of leather, sunglasses at night. It's an interesting combination. For myself, like, for seeing this scene as, like, a wannabe goth, I was, Mm -hmm. like, entranced. I was like... 
Right. This is what I want. This is where I want to be. I want to be at this club, even though I'll probably be hiding in the back being a weirdo just watching everyone because they're so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that case, then you would be like Miriam, Catherine Deneuve and John David Bowie, because they're not engaging with this at all. They're just kind of taking it all in. Although it sounds like, Jess, you maybe wouldn't be there to shop for eye candy that you could bring back to your flat and, you know, fuck and bleed to death. Well, maybe. I don't, I I don't know say, what who, you do on the weekends. I, for a second, I was like, who says I wouldn't? <laughs> <laughs> you don't know me. Don't make those assumptions. Ooh, I will say, though, this movie, like, I mean, I know it's the 80s, but making cigarette smoking look real fucking sexy. Right? Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. man. Ca- every, every scene of Catherine Deneuve, I'm just like, oh, my God, queen. <laughs> <laughs> Smoke it. Well, the other interesting thing to me is I don't know how much these films would have overlapped, but I mean, we're talking about Tony Scott. The year before Ridley Scott would have released Blade Runner, and it has a very similar kind of like smoky, futuristic, very distinctively lit, very distinctively styled film in Blade Runner. Like really trying to bring you into this world. Like mm-hmm. you're brought in, you can feel the like you can feel the energy, the atmosphere. Like you almost want you want to be in this world. Like I know whenever I watch Blade Runner, I'm like I want to be in that world. Right. Yeah, it, it really immerses you, particularly in the early scenes when you're trying to do the world building and establish these characters. They both have such a distinctive visual eye. Well, even some of the framing in this movie, too. Like, I, honestly, something that stuck out to me the most in this film is that we have a lot of things where the, the focal point of what we're supposed to be looking at is not in the center of the screen. He likes to put them on the left side of the right side of the screen very often. Yeah, because that usually ends up giving you sort of free range to look at other things, or it creates tension because you're wondering what's going to come into the frame to fill it. Right? It's just like, it's off. But 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 nothing does, which is what I find so fascinating about this film. I mean, it, it is stylish, and it is gorgeous to look at but Mm -hmm. to me it makes up for a lot of those narrative shortcomings right yeah like you're never bored because there's always something interesting to look at even if narratively it's a little simple yeah yeah so one of the things since we are talking about the look of the film and the way that we watch it is particularly as we lead into the sex scene which is arguably the most famous part of this movie apart from maybe the fact that bowie is in it Mm -hmm. is the gaze because i think some people have lobbied criticism against this movie for saying well this is based on a book by a man screenplay written by a man directed by a man and then we've got you know this very infamous lesbian sex scene in it so it's very male gazy and I think that we can have some interesting conversations about how specifically the sex scene is shot. But I would also argue that I think the film does encourage more than a heterosexual male perspective because of the way that both Bowie and Deneuve and Sarandon are shot. Yeah, I, I mean, I was going to say, honestly, I mean, like, like, we can talk about the male gay shit when we get to the, the, the sex scene itself. But even the way it's shot, like, to me, that's that scene is so erotic more than it is sexual i guess if that makes any kind of sense like the, it, it feels classy like that that sex scene mm-hmm. i love the way that scene is shot it is yes. so beautiful it's so erotic but it doesn't i don't know i don't i personally don't get like a gross male gazy thing out of it but you know maybe i'll disagree well how about we'll wait and we'll, we'll yeah. talk about it when we get there yeah. i guess the the reason i wanted to bring up gaze specifically early on is because we do have our two quote-unquote leads at this point looking at people but i thought it was interesting how the way both are framed like they're incredibly gorgeous Mm -hmm. 
individuals like Bowie and Deneuve, incredible bone structure, the way that they're lit in the movie, they always, you know, they look visually pleasing because they are young and perfect because, you know, they're monsters and they're feasting on blood <laughs> and so on. But I found a piece that I'll refer to a couple times throughout this by Deborah Michelle called The Proprietary Cinematic Gaze in Tony Scott's The Hunger in, and it's from a website called Acidemic, which I was like, okay, that is a, an interesting play on academic. <laughs> but uh, Michelle says, the spectator's gaze might be that of a heterosexual male, but it might also be a gay or bisexual male or mm. female gaze, which appreciates the images of both Miriam and John. The slippage of gender in the assumed spectatorial gaze and on the screen represents only the first in a series of border transgressions to come. Masculine and feminine, sex and violence, animal and human, love and death all shift uneasily like quicksand in this narrative. Okay, cool. So there you go. <laughs> well, yeah, Look, I raised it because I wanted to read the quote. <laughs> no, and that's a great I quoted idea because as I'm thinking of like the casting for this film, right? Like you could have cast anyone to play mm -hmm. John, uh, the vampire, you know, Miriam's lover, but you choose David Bowie. Someone yes. who transgresses gender all the time, right? right. Like, there's mm -hmm. a femininity that goes with this character of John that it almost makes sense when Miriam starts to transfer her uh, affections to Sarah because there's a similarity between them. There's that, like, mm -hmm. that feminine connection that you just can't help but think, like, and so I, I agree with trace when you say like male gazy i don't see like there is a sense of some male gaze but it just it's so it plays with you because there's points where i'm just like okay this is gorgeous i'm i'm not offended by this at all like i would look mm -hmm. at, I, I would admire this woman at that way as well well you're you're totally right jess i mean i think one of the things that people sometimes overlook in the film is like bowie is incredibly androgynous yes yeah. Like, he's known for his androgyny. And then the way that Sarandon is styled in the movie, like, yes, it's very 83. Like, her haircut is of that era. And yet she is also, to a certain extent, very androgynous, right? So yeah. it does feel like we're sort of swapping one in for the other. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, Deneuve, in a way, could be said to embody both the masculine and the feminine. Because she's very hard. She's very controlling. She has all these kind of traditionally masculine uh qualities to her but then she's also seductive and soft like the way she wears her hair is both at once so i i think that the film is very interested in traditional depictions of gender and sexuality and it wants to play with them yes 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 and that's what makes it so interesting <laughs> like mm -hmm. that, that's part of the reason why i'm never bored watching this movie because i it's it's all of that coupled with the fact that this is 1983 yeah, that's the other thing, right? Like when we talk about the the vampire, the queer vampire movies from the 80s, we're usually talking about Fright Night, which is 85. Mm -hmm. And then we're talking about Lost Boys, which is 87, 88. I think it's 87. I think it's 87. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So it's like this one is the the original one and obviously not the first queer vampire film ever made but but it's more explicitly queer than both fright night and lost boys yes i would agree with that yes yeah it's less coded more upfront yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay so as we've said miriam and john are basically hunting but uh in a sexy way so the next scenes that we see are intercut with the two of them in a car with a couple who are played by ann magnuson and john stephen hill 
these two do not get names because they're basically just here to provide some some fuckery when we get back to the house. And then all of a sudden, these onk necklaces transform into mini daggers and we're killing people and just washing our hands of it. Is it cultural appropriation that they're using onk daggers? I mean, onk is definitely <laughs> an Egyptian symbol. Sure, we learn later it means everlasting life, but it's kind of like, well... <laughs> well, like, if it connects to her connection to being in Egypt, but even then we're like, ooh, a little iffy with that. And You're French, really lady. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, right? Ma'am, you are a white French lady. <laughs> I guess what's interesting to me is that this feels like a subversion of what we would traditionally expect. Like, usually in vampire films, you see crosses, right? Yes. And that yeah. is wholly absent from this movie. Well, I, I, I actually, part what what I love about this movie though is how it plays with vampire lore. Like these fuckers can walk around in the daylight. There's mm -hmm. no fangs. They have to use weapons to bleed their people. And right. I, I mean, we'll talk about the way that you become a. I mean, it's always you know AIDS e. But I feel like specifically mm -hmm. in this movie, it really like you can have that AIDS reading about it more explicitly than some other vampire movies of the time. Oh, for sure. Yeah, so we, we neglected to mention that we are introduced technically to Sarah and her co-worker Phyllis briefly in this scene, because as we're seeing these humans get cut up by these onk necklaces, we're also watching a couple of monkeys murder each other. Well, the, the male monkey murders the female monkey, and it's very provocative in the way that it's edited. So even though we're not actually seeing a lot of violence, we're seeing... Well, even though we're not seeing a lot of gore, we're seeing a lot of violence. Well, it's because we cross-cut a lot in this movie but when mm -hmm. we're having, like, violent scenes or sexual scenes like this. And I think it's kind of fun. I think it's kind of – because I, I saw that quote from Bowie where he talks about how, oh, there's nothing like that looks like it on the market, but it is kind of a rather gory like, – he, he wasn't really pleased with the gore in the film. Hmm. But that's one of those things where I'm like, I don't really think the, the, the film is that particularly violent, but maybe it's one of those things where it's like he's filming it. So there's, he wound up seeing a lot more blood when they were filming and the editing cuts around it a lot. Mm. And I feel like it gets violent because of the way the film goes. Like everything is so nice, pretty, like morning, like, like everything's so slow. And then all of a sudden it's just like violence and then it's done. Right. Like, it just happens so jarringly, like, each time it happens, um, and you get the loud, like, striking music that goes with it as well that really ignites that in the film. Yeah, I think you're right, Jess, because so much of this film, I think in our editorial trace, I mentioned that this sometimes feels like it's an elaborate, ornate perfume commercial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the opening of the film looks like a music video or a commercial. Like, it, it immediately transports you into that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. The beginning of the movie is a music video. And then later on, it's like, we're doing flowy linens in the breeze with the fog machine. The sheath is so many sheets. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's really why they didn't make their money back is because they spent all of their money on sheets. Egyptian cotton sheets. Oh my god, Trace. Only the best. Only the best for Miss Deneuve. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so after after the violence, we do get to watch Miriam and John basically pack up these bodies, put them in the back of the truck, and then incinerate them in the, frankly, industrial-looking incinerator that they have in the basement of this New York townhouse. Well, okay, this... <laughs> <laughs> this i i need to see a map of this place because yes. not only do they have it in center but they have this enormous attic that mm -hmm. she snuck 20 co coffins into <laughs> holding her dead lovers that no one noticed 
I remember making that note being like, this would be like a logistic nightmare. Be like, I need to find a townhouse that has this suspect specific <laughs> specs all around and stuff like that. And then I also thought, I'm like, oh my God, this is also a perfect place for froggers. This is terrifying. I don't like any of this at all. <laughs> oh my God. In case you don't know, it's PH frog froggers, people that hide in your attic and live yes. in your house without you knowing. Mm-hmm. Ugh. I mean, they they basically own a small size building in yeah. New York, and yeah. I I get it. You know, when we see it, it's house porn for days. We've got <laughs> Miriam outfitting this place with really really expensive looking pieces of art. At one point, I think Sarah says, "Oh, I love this piece," and you're just like, "Bitch, that's probably from real ancient Egypt." But <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, have at it. So clearly, they have money. But I think this is at least a five or six story walk up with yes an incinerator an elevator and an open air attic and also something i noticed too this is like the first time i noticed in seeing this movie so many times they the when they kill the couple from the club they kill them at a different house yes they have a second location yes so i'm like they have a murder location <laughs> and then they drive back with the bodies to incinerate them so i was just like mm-hmm. oh i never noticed that before <laughs> Yeah, they they fully have a second place that they just use to murder people in. You know what? That is opulent. Good for them. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, see, they need to be hanging out with um uh, Tilda Swinton and what's his face and only lovers. Oh, Tom oh yes, yeah, okay. Because mm-hmm. isn't that set in the eighties too? Mm-hmm. Oh, even if it's not, they need to hang out with them. There we go. <laughs> They can just be sad and mopey together. Exactly. (laughs) So speaking of sad and mopey, we do see John is not sleeping. So even though Miriam is fully satiated after all of this, she's completely passed out. John is wide awake in bed. He is remembering this memory that we see of the two of them. Seems to be set about 200 years prior. Some kind of Victorian nonsense. Likely French. (laughs) Because they got the big, uh, you know, Marie Antoinette kind of wig thing going on. And we'll come to eventually suss out that this is when he was first turned. So he's reflecting back on when it all began. Because, (gasps) spoiler alert... He's about to start dying. But isn't I, I? I I appreciate these scenes more in a rewatch. They are quick cutaways, quick flashes. Mm-hmm. But I feel like in a maybe not even a lesser film, but a different film, um, we would be getting full on like flashback scenes to this. And mm-hmm. honestly, ain't nobody got time for that. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, I love the movie, but ladies and gentlemen, I give you Highlander. <laughs> I don't know what that means. It's a movie called no. Highlander. <laughs> I, I know what the movie is, but how does that compare to the, what I just said? You mean like all like so, the memory scenes when McCloud has like all yes. those like long memories and you're like, okay, let's get back to the film that we yeah. were oh, There are okay. whole chunks of that movie where it's just like, I'm remembering my past from the Scottish Highlands and you're just like, oh, Jesus Christ, we got 10 minutes of Sean Connery doing a bit on a boat. I didn't know, I, I, I have, I, I don't know what Highlander is about. I, everyone always talks about it. But, but Oh my God, Trace. It's so good. Which one is Endgame? Because I feel like that one was always advertised on the Sci-Fi Channel when I was growing up. So my my knowledge of Highlander is whatever Highlander Endgame is. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's like four? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, what you need to do is watch the first Highlander and watch Sean Connery, a Scottish man, mm-hmm. be an Egyptian man. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> and then you need to go and watch the second one. Yes, but then you the have second to find one is great. 
but there's two different versions and you have to watch them both and then report back. <laughs> oh, that sounds like like none of this sounds good to me. Oh, it's Russell Mulcahy. Okay. It's, okay. It's I, I so would argue bad, but good. I, I love the lore of Highlander though. Like, yes, I mean, I we're do. talking about the lore in The Hunger and it's kind of non-existent, right? Like you really just have to fill in those gaps yourself unless you're going to read that source material. Highlander is like, let us tell you everything we're gonna build this whole secret society where you got to go around chopping off other people's heads to accumulate their power and it plays out over centuries jesus yeah. christ i'm just looking i'm looking at the wikipedia page for highlander franchise and i'm like there are so there's so <laughs> oh, many so words many. about this franchise <laughs> and what it, I love, it is legitimately great it is legitimate and what i love is that they constantly change the origins and that's why oh, when you watch the time. second one, you're, and there's like two different versions of the second movie. You're just like, wait, so what's going on now? What what is their origin story? Because I just believed mm -hmm. all this, and now it's all this. <laughs> you but might folks, have to program that. Clancy because... Brown is the villain in the first film. Okay, that's... well you might have to program it because I will, I can almost guarantee I will never just watch this movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> because here's the other thing, Trace. Did you see who who Connor McCloud is? It's Christopher Lambert, the guy from Mortal Kombat. Yeah, but he's supposed to be like an American and or a Scotsman. So imagine Christopher <laughs> Lambert with his French as fuck <laughs> accent being like, hey, 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 yes, I am Scottish. Okay, yeah, no, I was like, that, that's the voice he has in Mortal Kombat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, always, I get him confused with Dexter's dad because Dexter's dad is, oh, yeah. he, he replaces mm -hmm. him in the second Mortal Kombat movie. Correct. Mm, yes. yes. Anyway, I'm sorry, y'all. Fun Highlander tangent. I'm never going to watch it. Um, back to the hunger. <laughs> back to the hunger. Yeah. So, well, John thinks about the end of his life. We spend a little bit of time with Sarah and her colleagues. So she has a female colleague named Phyllis, who is played by Suzanne Burdish, as well as this kind of asshole guy named tom who we will eventually come to realize is actually sarah's boyfriend wait I'm, I'm curious what makes him an asshole he's just like every generic white dude yes like he's so basic and plain and it's mostly the way that he reacts when they go out for dinner and he's like how come you got the steak you don't seem very hungry okay and you're just so like okay dude take it down a notch. i agree with him being a basic white dude but let's not forget that his girlfriend was gone with some woman for three and a half hours and he, he, I, he's right because she did cheat on him <laughs> yeah but i mean like he like two women could just be hanging out having a good time mm -hmm. chatting he has no right to grill her about it being like well, i'm all suspicious you can't talk to someone for three and a half hours you just met and i'm like yeah i could i don't think he even suspects that she had a sexual affair because i think that would be beyond his limited capabilities i think he's just like you were gone for three hours, and I want to know where you were. What were you mm. talking about? I'm trying to control your life. I am always the one defending asshole men on this podcast. <laughs> this is I, true. Why Why do you feel the need, Trace? I, I, I don't even care. He is. He's a boring, generic white dude who will get killed by the end of this movie. But let's not mistake the fact that Susan, Sarah is not doing a good job covering up her lie in this movie. <laughs> I would argue that the film tells us that they are not a good fit for one another. No, but I'm just... I'm just I, I, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> You're still trying to do it, and I don't know why. Uh, I know. I'm just Maybe like. Maybe it's because of the glasses scene when he's looking in the bathroom and he's praying on the black sunglasses. He's like, "Yeah, I'm really cool." Well, Maybe. no. Hey, look, I, I, I am not defending an asshole at all. All I'm saying is, I do understand where he's coming from a bit because the way she reacts to any of his questions hmm. is not convincing in the slightest. As someone who I think is a pretty good liar myself, she's not a good liar. <laughs> She's a little defensive. Yes. 
Anyway, all this to say, so we're talking about monkey death and monkey murder here. And uh, it's important to note that, oh, we're learning that Sarah is involved in both blood research, but also anti-aging. So that's one of the things that they were doing with these monkeys. <laughs> Don't you love that when a movie like deals with a very, very niche specific thing in its plot? And then it's like, oh, good, we had this character who happens to be an expert on the field. <laughs> I mean, I would argue that that's why Sarah is in this movie, though. It just yes. so happens that she's like hot, young Susan Sarandon. But the reason that they go to her is because she is explicitly doing the thing that they are trying to solve. Oh, yeah. I'm just saying it's really nice and convenient for them that she's in the same city as them, that she's doing talk show appearances with her new book about this exact topic mm -hmm. when they need it most. <laughs> exactly. You know what? It's New York is the city of dreams, baby. They really have everything for you. Like. The only way that I could think that Miriam would know all about this is Sarah is because Miriam, oh, Miriam knows that these people will eventually die. So yeah. maybe at yes. some point she heard something in the wind of be like, oh, they're actually doing a study on anti-aging. And right. that's reading more into it. <laughs> so apparently in the novel, she has been following Sarah for a while, like oh, following okay. her research. Okay. And e even a tidbit like that, I bet, okay, cool. I mean, look, it's not really an issue. I don't really care because it's not the point of the movie. But even like a little like throwaway line, like I've been following your work for a decade. Be like, okay, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because you are meant to think, oh, it is fortuitous, but also... There's a lot of implied, hmm, there's something about the relationship between particularly Sarah and Miriam in this movie where it's kind of like, well, we were always destined to do this. Like, mm. we have such an influence over each other, or rather, Miriam does over Sarah. Yeah. Definitely. Which, I mean, it's, uh, even though I called uh, Miriam a bitch or a cunt, one of those things earlier, I, I still feel so bad for her because I get it. I do get it, <laughs> but her behavior is so toxic in this film. I don't think I realized that until after a first viewing where I was like, oh, wait, she's really not a good person. No, no, no. She's, she's definitely the villain. She's the monstrous villain in this movie. It's just, it's so easy to forget that because Deneuve is so fucking gorgeous and her performance is so regal. I don't know how you don't cheer for Miriam in this movie, even as your brain is telling you, oh, no, she's fully just like murdering people and lying to all of her lovers and kind of being a horrible garbage individual. Man, I'm not going to lie. Like, I mean, like, I don't find this movie particularly scary, but the fates of her lovers, it like oh, even thinking awful. about it it, 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 it like gives me chills. Yeah, it's terrifying to be mm -hmm. like essentially like I'm just going to live dying and decaying in this box for the rest of my life. Well, I'm yes. sorry, for the rest of the, which is all eternity. Yes! Bye! <laughs> See your new Don't friends. Don't mind me, I'm just going to put the lid on the coffin. Take care like, of at them, least, everyone At else. least put them all in a chair, like in a circle of chairs, so they can all sit and stare at each other. <laughs> you imagine coming into that scene, like just walking through Miriam's Ooh. house and be like, wow, this is just a bunch of rotting corpses in <laughs> the chairs in this room. Well, I think the they're door. dry corpses. I don't think dry corpses can rot. They're just dry. They're okay. very dry. <laughs> I don't know. That attic is open to the elements. Like, all you need is a little bit of rain. Those fuckers are getting moist. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, once you start, like, breaking into it all, you're like, this is not as romantic as it should look. No, no. this is grody. <laughs> it's Scott's filmmaking that makes it look romantic. So he did 100%. his job. He did, 100%. <laughs> we'll know before we go further on. Um, when I first saw this film and saw Susan uh, uh, Susan Sarandon's character, Sarah, I was like, mm -hmm. holy crap, she is hot. And I remember when I first right. met her met her as an actor in Rocky Horror Picture Show, I was like, meh, she's okay. And then when I saw her, I was like, oh, 
I know, I know, <laughs> okay, but like, wait, no, no, it's so funny because so I, I'm not even the biggest fan of Rocky. I think it's fine. I don't, I don't, I appreciate it. I respect it. It's not a film that I particularly like to go to. I love it's her. Too in that esoteric movie. for you. Oh my god. Uh, yeah, it's not for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, it's because so, my favorite part of the whole movie is when they're doing the Brad, John, oh. Rocky, oh, yeah. Brad, John, Rocky. <laughs> And I just think she's so good at that moment. <laughs> well, she just, she looks so cutesy in that film, which I know is what she's supposed to be yes. in that film. And I just remember, you know, and when I saw both this, The Hunger and also uh, Rocky or Picture Show, I was like, I was in, in my queer, like, I am queer, but like, I was out and like dating a woman and stuff like that. So it was just like, oh, she's cute. Like, you know, and then I see her in The mm-hmm. Hunger. I was like, wow. Okay, damn, girl. <laughs> See, I was trying to think of the first thing that I saw Serena in. I think it was Stepmom. I think Stepmom or The Client. Exactly. So I've only known her as like that type. I I didn't know her during her sex, like her sexual uh, sex symbol era. Um, And that's it. That's all I have to say. Mm. (laughs) I mean, I fully agree with you, Jess. I think all three leads in this movie are incredibly gorgeous and stylish, but it feels like Saranen is the shock to younger viewers because yeah. we aren't used to seeing her looking like this. Like when she's got the bright red lipstick on and that hair is just so, even in, you know, just the white t-shirt when she shows up and she's angry, you're just like, yeah, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we should mention that uh, John and Miriam do have a line that they repeat to each other over and over, and it is forever, forever and ever, because that is the promise that Miriam makes to all of these lovers, is that they will be young and they will be together forever because they are a part of her. Man, there's some fine print on that fucking contract. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Jesus, yeah. yeah, it's like, oh, did you not read the small eight font writing you with know the asterisks at the bottom of the it's page? It's actually semantics, because she doesn't lie. They will be together forever and ever. This um, true. Mm-hmm. he's just not going to be young forever and ever <laughs> yeah she, she just kind of covers the truth a little bit she's just like yeah, yeah we'll, we'll be together forever as she's not looking at him as he's aging she's like yeah forever mm-hmm. <laughs> definitely forever mm-hmm. she's like looking up at the attic like she, she hears something she's like shut up over there <laughs> I mean, my thing is also like, did you not notice that we're also transporting at least a half dozen coffins every time we move to a new location? Who do you think is in there? Well, he's a man. He's a man. Stupid. And he doesn't notice things. Well, I think it's also, to me, a lot of this film is very much about being accustomed to the life that you have Mm. grown into, right? Like, the reason that John is so angry with her later on is because she made him this promise, and it's been 200 years. But on the flip side, dude, you got 200 more years than most people would ever get. So... But the trade-off, here's the thing. Would you rather live a regular length of life and die, or would you rather get 200 years to do whatever the fuck you wanted at the age of 30, but then after that 200 years, be doomed to live in a box for all eternity? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also, during those 200 years, you also become an addict to blood. That too. And something I picked up in this was also their, their loss of identity. Because Mm -hmm. John doesn't really know who he is. He's lived his life as Miriam has wanted them to live their lives. And we haven't introduced this character yet, Alice, but she makes a comment later in the film about like, oh, I know everything about Miriam. She's like my best friend. Mm -hmm. I know nothing about John. He's like mystery to me. And you're like, oh, 
Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm not saying I want this, but there is a way to do a TV show version of this where you you have the Catherine Deneuve character mm-hmm. as your main character across all the seasons, but every season is a different lover. So a uh, different time period, different lovers. Mm. Ooh. That would be interesting. I love that. Like, have well, yeah, oh yeah. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're very fond of your own idea, Trey. I am. I'm so smart. <laughs> um. Okay. So, where are we? Actually, so yes, we are on the verge of introducing music student Alice, who is played by Beth Ellers, and I think that this young actor is. A very kind of cute and plucky, giving me Jodie Foster vibes. I was going to say Jodie like Foster Taxi too. Driver and stuff. Well, because speaking of androgyny, um, I, mm-hmm. I I legit thought this was a long haired boy for most of her first scene. It could go either way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it like I think deliberately so though. Like the yeah. movie wants you to play with this. I think it's one of the reasons why miriam might have even been attracted to alice to take on this girl as a student well and she uh, and that's the other thing too so it, it's implied in the film it's explicit in the book that she was grooming alice to be john's replacement but oh. she was taken aback because john's degradation happened sooner than she so expected quickly. yes yeah. mm-hmm. because it was only 200 years where i think in the past her lovers had at least 300 years that is wild and yeah. also very interview with the vampire. Yes. Oh, yeah. So, oh, and because I just see Alice as like their surrogate child, right? Like they can't actually mm-hmm. have children together. So they have this, you know, neighbor child that they sure. play music with and stuff like that. And they've grown to, but to be, actually be grooming her. Oh, yeah. She's a groomer. Oh, <laughs> no, we don't use that word. No, no this word. movie's homophobic. Oh. <laughs> 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 It, it's interesting, though, right? Like, I think Alice is a fascinating character because in some ways we know nothing about this girl. She exists to give us information about John and Miriam. Yeah. So from a storytelling perspective, it's like, this is a nothing character, but what she does to tell us about our two leads is very important. And yet I find Alice makes such a huge impression in just these couple of scenes that she's in. I agree, but I actually needed to see Miriam's reaction to finding Alice's corpse or knowing that John killed Alice. That's I needed that because mm. because I think that's where again the implication is that yeah she was going to groom Alice to be her next lover and th- her death doesn't really factor into this film whatsoever right. emotionally. Yeah. I think it's because it happens at the moment where John has really hit the wall, right? Like he has decomposed to such sure. a state at that point that Miriam kind of has to deal with him before she can do anything. But I agree with you. It's not quite enough to see, oh, here's a Polaroid on the floor. Oh, shit. I know what that means. And then just cut to her looking at the incinerator. Dude, yeah. but, you know, one of my favorite shots in this movie is um the music pages as they fall on the floor and the blood soaks through them. Mm-hmm. Love that. That's oh, so stylish. Mm-hmm. If murder can be said to be stylish. It's, well, it's very striking for, especially in a horror film, murder of a child. That's a, that's a mm-hmm. no-no. Well, actually, yeah. because we've talked about the blue color palette, but I actually think that, that that helps the red. The few times we do get to see blood in this movie, it mm-hmm. really stands out. Mm, yeah, I agree. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the other things, when I mentioned Blade Runner, I was also thinking about some of the films that have influenced that movie, which is 
film noir. Like a lot of this movie, The Hunger, yeah. looks like it could be a film noir. And like Miriam is a femme fatale, right? Like yeah. she's kind of androgynous. She's super controlling with her sexuality. She's basically emasculating all the men around her. And the, the color palette, well, yes, very blue. It has that kind of chiaroscuro lighting, and the blue could be mistaken for a sort of black and white aesthetic. But then when we get the red, it it just pops, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, what were we talking about? Or I said I tried to say chiaroscuro. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. Uh, I I'd, I'd read it many times before. I just had never tried to say it out loud. <laughs> yeah, well, it's one of those words where you're like, "Who the fuck says this word out loud?" <laughs> uh, film scholars, <laughs> and podcasters, apparently. <laughs> Okay, yes, so John is rapidly falling ill. We have to excuse Alice because this lesson is not going to go ahead, even though we keep striking on this idea of people are afraid to get old. We want to talk about immortality. So we're really bringing Dr. Sarah's research in on what we're seeing of like news clips and her in the lab with John's decline in general health, right? So I I love this idea that... um, after Alice leaves, it's just such a simplistic visual shot. No words needed. He goes into the bathroom and he sees that he has wrinkles under his eyes. Yes. Um, I'm sorry. I really want to mention. Sorry, I, I did pull a quote from the book about Alice. I, not to go backwards again, but no, you're fine. Um, so this is a. Uh, it's a. Uh, it's not a like a character dialogue, but it's just an internalized monologue, and it's for uh, Miriam. But it says her thoughts went to little Alice Cavender, whom she would transform when John's winter actually came many years from now alice would be rising to summer as he withered she would flower and miriam's love would slip from one to the next with none of the agonizing sense of loss she had experienced in the past and that's why it's a surprise whenever john starts declining because she's like wait this Mm -hmm. child needs to get a little bit older (laughs) (laughs) wait i had this like a poetic romantic idea of how this was all gonna go and now it's all getting fucked up and that's actually because i do want to read the book for that reason though because i feel like you'll be in Miriam's head a bit more and it's mm. going to be a very fascinating head to be in like I was literally just thinking that as you were talking about that I'm like oh and now I want to read this book more just to understand what Miriam's doing and kind mm-hmm. of be like so you're literally just replacing one lover for the next I'm like that's really toxic narcissistic behavior what are you yes. doing yes. <laughs> she's like 6,000 years old yes. <laughs> but, to, but to treat all of your lovers as interchangeable because you don't want to deal with the emotional devastation of losing them like dude that's not just narcissism that is top shelf in six thousand years this bitch never went to therapy (laughs) right like spend some time alone (laughs) solo life she's a serial monogamist but like in the worst way possible (laughs) i love that though right you know there's something so great you know i don't think bowie gets a ton of great showy moments he's actually quite understated in this movie Mm -hmm. which is fun to consider his onstage persona compared to john but i do love that moment where he gets really accusatory and he's kind of like well who do you have next you know like who's gonna take care of you when i'm gone also all these fuckers have to listen to them fuck for 300 years and Mm -hmm. i'm sorry and so on and so on and so on (laughs) Yeah, I've been listening to this bitch fuck for 6,000 years. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she just did the sherry trick again, everybody. Good job, Maria. <laughs> she pulled out the sherry. Get them nips out. 
<laughs> She's playing the love song of the two lovers. Yeah. All oh, the right moves. <laughs> I was going to say, do y'all think that Eli Roth was intentionally homaging this movie when he does his underwater lesbian porno scene? Because it's the same fucking song. Oh, imp- oh sorry. In Piranha 3D. Oh, I was like, what movie are you talking about? Uh, I don't know. Possibly. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. We've, we've talked about it before. Eli Roth is very media literate, so he likely knows the hunger. And he's like, lesbians, lesbians. Oh, that he song does like from the hunger. Ah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that As we discussed track. in Hostel 2, he does like lesbians. And Piranha 3D. <laughs> <laughs> Although technically that's Alexandra Aja's film. But. Oh, right. Oh, shit. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm cutting that out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Fuck. No, go ahead. You okay? No, I just realized. I've been thinking the entire time Eli Roth did (laughs) Piranha 3D. (laughs) Well, I think because he's like an executive producer. (laughs) He's involved at some point. Mm -hmm. He told Alexander Asha. (laughs) He was like, you know what would be a great little scene? Have a bit with Sherry. And Alexander Aja was like, no, that's Catherine Deneuve's bit. I'm not doing that. Well, how about tits out underwater ballet sequence? <laughs> now I have to keep it in. <laughs> Sold. <laughs> hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay, so, uh, yes. So John is declining quicker and quicker. He shows Miriam that his hair is falling out. And he asks how long he's got because he knows that this has happened before. But he he either thinks that he's going to just flat out die or that Miriam can give him some kind of answers, right? Like, he he seems so scared because he didn't know that this was going to happen. Which is ironic, because you're like, but you just mentioned Lolia. Well, okay, but the, the, the sad thing about this is he is so upset because he's like, oh my god, I'm not going to live forever, I'm going to die. And it's like, mm-hmm. girl... Wait. (laughs) (laughs) You never considered this. You never thought about it. Yeah. Well, also, too, to imagine aging so rapidly. Like, I I was really struck by the sections of the film where we're watching John aging, like you were saying, Joe, like looking in the mirror, seeing the wrinkles, seeing the little spots. And also one scene that really hit me is where he's sitting so close to the TV just to hear it. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh my goodness. Like all (laughs) the typical things that as someone is aging, they start, you know, experiencing these changes. And I guess as like, as we are all aging, we're sitting there being like, oh, I'm feeling this. I don't like this at all. So imagine all that happening within like a couple days period. (laughs) Wait, do I have progeria? Am I also like that X-Files episode about the kid who age rapidly <laughs> answer no we're just aging no. I, I, I do like though the, the aging because it's it's he goes to sarah you know and he's like waiting in the patient's room i love that it's not like a like a the wolfman type thing where we're just kind of like seeing him in one frame age right. it's every time we cut back to him he's just a yes. little bit older yeah 
Oh, it's so good. Which felt very symbolic of sitting in a waiting room in a doctor's office. Yeah. Like, I feel like I'm dying as I'm waiting to be seen. <laughs> I never even considered that, but honestly, that's really funny. <laughs> so true. And particularly when she says, you know, I'll be back in 15 minutes. And he's like, okay, 15 minutes. And then she leaves and never comes back. She thought he was a crank. She did think he was a crank. Admittedly, he just walks into her office like, hi, I'm here. You should treat me. And I was 30 yesterday. Kind of a busy, important person. <laughs> yeah, she de-escalated that situation quite well, though, because that can be quite terrifying for a woman in a restricted area being like, what are you doing here? Why are you yelling at me? Well, he grabs her, too. I'm <laughs> mm-hmm. like, oof, dude. Well, he's wearing sunglasses and a trench coat and a hat, too. <laughs> There's Sir, a flasher in the room. Flasher? <laughs> Okay, so um, let, let's let take all of the fun out of things by introducing AIDS into the mix, shall we? Oh, God. Okay, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> so um, I, I read a couple of different pieces from people who said, you know, the AIDS metaphor is very easy to read into this movie, particularly in these scenes with John as we start to see him go, right? So when he goes to visit Sarah, he says, look at my hand, look at the liver spots. I was a young man yesterday. And I think for people who went through the AIDS crisis, they can see a lot of how people were mishandled by medical professionals who didn't Mm. take their concerns seriously, but also just how quickly people can decay from being super healthy and happy and normal, quote unquote, one day. And then the next day, you know, they're in the hospital, they're losing their hair, they've got, uh, you know, marks on their skin and that kind of stuff so i've got um another reference from michelle so she says people with aids are metaphorically represented in this film with vivid imagery the extremely rapid aging and horrifying death of john the themes of blood exchange and scientific experiments and deviant sex all point to a subtle aids reference I guess this is 83. So this is like the very, very, very beginning of the AIDS crisis, huh? Yeah. So the book was written in 81. And apparently that's when we started to get reports of like, hmm, doctor, something is something weird is going on. Yeah. But we didn't have a name for it. But the the designation AIDS, I think, would have come out around 83. So like this film hits right as we're naming the disease. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And then it definitely gets stronger in its messaging. I know for me, when uh, Sarah is churned, when she has, and then particularly Mm -hmm. that uh, poignant scene where she's uh, having her blood examined and they're like talking about the blood. You're like, oh yeah. And the way they start treating her and how she's struggling with it all. When when they are like, show me your arm. I'm like, fuck no. (laughs) Let me show, show me your arm. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, there's a a weird judginess to the way that they treat her. Um, And I I do think that that's where the quote-unquote deviant sex comes in, right? Because on one hand, it looks like an injection site. Because this movie is very much doing the vampire as addict. But then it also kind of looks like a really gross hickey. And you can feel like they're judging her because, well... Sarah, what have you been up to? Who have you been seeing? Who oh. have you been fucking? Oh, are you are you getting a bit more um in, in, inter uh, oh my god antagonistic towards her? Do you want to know why she's lying to you? Maybe that makes you an asshole, generic white man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and she could have that fear herself because like 
she just ha- probably just mm-hmm. had her first sexual experience with a woman, right? So right. she's having this identity. She's like, oh my goodness, I'm this. I've never experienced this before. I'm you know going kind of coming to terms with herself and her sexuality, and then to have you know this thing happening with her body and her blood, and you know bringing that back to the whole AIDS allegory and HIV crisis. You're like, mm-hmm, yep, you know that's mm-hmm. hidden. Yeah, it's interesting in some ways because. I can already guarantee you there's going to be a bunch of people who don't see it. Maybe we're reaching too much. But as Uh, we said, I actually uh, think this one is the most explicit of the ones that we've mentioned. Yeah, I feel like uh, we've uh, we've reached... I'm trying to think of what, what the Forsaken was 100% AIDS, like that, that, and that was like 2001 vampire yes. shit. Near Dark is even very AIDSy because there's a whole blood transfusion thing in that movie. Um, oh shit, that was the other. That's the third one. Oh yes, there. Oh, and that is 86. I think. I think that's 86. No, you're right. It's 87. Oh fuck. Okay. Well, nevertheless, but I think uh, it's all the 80s. <laughs> yeah, but I think also what what gives this allegory more like the Seymour strength is because. Sarah is also involved in this researching, right? And they're researching mm-hmm. about animals. Because obviously around the time, they're going to be doing the same thing in the 80s of trying to research this disease, find out what's going right. on, how is it changing people. And even though we're using the metaphor of age, of immortality and age and stuff like that, it's still a metaphor of there is this disease that's rapidly changing people, you know, mm-hmm. taking their lives. And, you know, they've had to test on something. They tested on animals to do that. And that's kind of where Sarah's role comes in. Because as a scientist, she knows that... Things aren't good. <laughs> Things are mm-hmm. not going to go well for her. Well, but and what make what sets this movie apart from all those other films we've just discussed, though, is that this is yeah, at the very like, again the first year that the year that the word AIDS or the phrase AIDS became an actual term, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that means anything, but I I think it makes this film, if anything, more interesting or fascinating from that AIDS perspective than Fright Night, than Near Dark, than Lost Boys. Well, it it almost makes it seem prescient, right? Like, because this film was in production before we even sort of knew what was happening. Mm -hmm. So it makes it seem as though it knows something is coming, even though you could say, oh, well, this is just a generic vampire film. Like, we're always talking about blood and exchanges of fluids and so on. Yeah. Yeah. I think people may, like, argue that it's like, well, it's it's a sex scene between two women, right? Like, that can't necessarily, like... Oh that can't happen but we're like but at the same time too we're like no safe sex like transfer the mm-hmm. fluids and stuff like that like it can happen to anyone like no one is safe from this from uh aids like that's right. just perceptions well that's also interesting right yeah because we have females dealing with this AIDS allegory in this movie as opposed to the male vampires that we get in this other films we mentioned right yes exactly yeah um i think one other way to look at it is because as we mentioned, there's a lot of cross-cutting in this movie. So as we're watching John deteriorate as he's waiting in the in the patient's lounge, um, you know, we're seeing this fantastic makeup by Dick Smith, the guy who did The Godfather, Exorcist, Amadeus, Death Becomes Her, the 1999 House on Haunted Hill. Um, and, and Scanners. Others. And Scanners. <laughs> I, I, I'm just saying, you, you left out the Cronenberg and that's not like you. I don't love scanners i know I it's, it's fine it's, it's aggressively <laughs> fine <laughs> but um i mean yeah makeup job in this is fantastic like the way that john transitions between like all the years is so interesting and compelling but we're also watching this as we're watching this horrifying monkey video where the monkey is deteriorating and just like rotting away and that's obviously a time lapse because they're looking at it over a longer period of time but it's it's very easy to see oh okay this is what the disease does to you so it's yes we're saying 
it's aging, but the reality is, as we because we're reading it through John's perspective, we're looking at it as a kind of viral blood-based infection. And really, that's how the scientific community would treat Miriam, as, like almost like a specimen, right? Like she is this, yes. has this blood about her, so it's the blood would be – yeah, no. I'm just saying mm-hmm. – I'm just repeating what you just said. Yeah, blood disease. <laughs> it's okay. We forgive you. <laughs> Um, okay, so John gets really pissed off and he ends up almost attacking an orderly in the bathroom, but he's interrupted. So he yells at Sarah, leaves the hospital. This movie loves to do near car accidents for some reason. I don't quite know why, but there's three of them in this movie where someone nearly gets run over in a crosswalk. <laughs> they're just, they're the days. They're just thinking. <laughs> I wonder if it's also just like you could die at any minute, right? Like you could die crossing the street. Yeah, but I mean, even Sarah's later, I think that's a moment to emphasize their telepathic connection that they have to each other. Mm, Mm Yeah. Which, sure. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which, sure. (laughs) (laughs) So then John attacks somebody on roller skates in an underpass, and then that's when he goes home, and poor Alice is just in the wrong place at the wrong time, and we get... I think this is probably one of the most stylishly shot murder sequences I've ever seen. Um, I don't disagree, but can you explain? I think it's just, yeah, so it it's really drawn out initially, mm-hmm. where Alice wants to come in, John doesn't want to let her in. She asks whether he's John's father because they have the same eyes and you realize she's way more perceptive than you realize. Mm-hmm. And he's hiding in the shadows behind the blinds finally comes into the light he asks her to play this music like it's just you're waiting for it you know it's coming and then when he finally attacks her we we just see him lift her up from behind and then we get like extreme close-ups of the blade slashing skin but it's obviously not this young actor who's being injured but the way it's all edited it feels frantic and visceral and just really deeply upsetting but also beautiful and then as you both said we end with those images of the sheet music falling on the ground and being soaked through in blood i do find this scene incredibly tense but i almost wonder if people didn't find it tense because they were like well they're not gonna kill this little girl maybe well i remember when i first saw that scene i didn't think alice was gonna die so i found her remember it being very striking i was just like oh my god he actually killed her because like yeah it was like early on and with horror movies being like no children don't die in horror movies now now Mm -hmm. i'm what's the word jaded i'm just like yeah child dies in horror movies oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) so much more often than you expect desensitized whatever (laughs) but it's still beautiful because it's you know it's in the 80s it can't really want to upset too many people with that um and like uh, joe was saying earlier like we really liked alice in the beginning she's like a likable character even Mm -hmm. when she's buzzing at the door i'm just like don't go in stay away like stranger danger like you don't know this person (laughs) but she's just like no it's fine it's good and you're like "Mm, this is not gonna go well I mean, one of the things that I find really interesting, too, is that we as an audience know a bit more than John and definitely Alice. But when I see this happening, I just think to myself, John, this is a desperate play. This won't work. And you know it because well, no, he nothing it. can stop what's already begun. So we know he's actually just killing this girl for no reason. Too. No, but I mean, I, I, yes, she has told him like this happens to all my lovers, but it's one of those things where, I mean, he's been alive for 300, 200, 300 years. And so he's just like, you're right. It's desperation. But I do think that he believes that this might work for him. I, hmm. I also think, cause I'm going to bring in like the, the monstrous vampire. Oh yes. Aspect into it. Um, 
you've you've been a creature that's been living off of the blood of humans for centuries. You, you eat once mm-hmm. out of seven, eat once out of every seven days. So yes, you do this for for life. You've you've built an instinct, right? To and as a vampire, you're going to sense blood. You're going to sense people around you, the hearing, the heart, stuff like that. They have these extra sensory perceptions. But as right. he's aging, his mind is also decaying, and now he's a threat. Oh. He's a danger because we've seen uh. from the moment he leaves the medical. Uh, building to the house he is almost like given up their cover a couple times because he tried to kill the mm-hmm. orderly he almost he tried to almost kill the young man's roller skating dancing under the underpass there and, and fails and then he kills alice now he's got the police on their backs so like he's a threat now because he can't control his vampiric ur- urges right um and that he- is fascinating just i never considered the fact that because he is to a certain extent he's becoming an old man so he he almost doesn't have his mental faculties about him anymore yeah like he's kind of going to that place of just being like well i've known the blood is supposed to keep me alive so i'll just keep on right. i'll just keep drinking the blood to keep me alive but also it's this animal and this is one of the other things i find in this film there's this, this animalisticness to being a vampire and the way that miriam and john like they hunt their prey there are a lot of the stalking the way they mm-hmm. they kind of interact with people and stuff like that like they know they're on the top of the food chain and oh, for sure. and there's just a lot of that in that and even like with in the sex scene later too like everything is just there's very primal with like the lust and and I always find that with vampires that as they start losing their mental uh, facilities they're more dangerous to mm-hmm. protecting well, the lifestyles and it, it's because we like we as a society sexualize vampires so much and because they are very sexy yes. un- until they're not yes yeah exactly <laughs> well I I think that's what vampire films love to do right they say oh they're sexy but they're also creatures right like yeah. they can't be reasoned with because they are driven by this insatiable hunger hence the title of the film <laughs> but at least they don't say it in the movie <laughs> no they, oh she does oh, they say do. it. She, does she does say the yeah. hunger oh well shit <laughs> <laughs> She's like, you'll never be able to escape the hunger when Sarah mm-hmm. tries to leave. That's when she goes out and yeah. gets the trick. Got it. Well, speaking of her, though, she comes home and she finds this fucker. And uh-huh. to connect it to uh, to Kelly's previous episode with us, it's she looks at him and it reminds me of Bride of Chucky whenever Tiffany's all burnt up by the oven. And she goes like, she's like, Chucky, hold me. And he's like, ugh. <laughs> just lets her fall. <laughs> Yeah, that's Miriam how she feels is, about him. <laughs> that's literally how Miriam feels about John now. She's just like, yeah. don't touch me. Yeah. I don't want to look at you. You're dying. I don't like death. I don't want to be reminded that you're dying. So time to carry you to your box. Bitch <laughs> oh, is in you're denial. Both so mean. <laughs> she, she's in denial. I, I, okay. I don't entirely disagree with you because she clearly is unhappy with what has happened to John. I don't think she's disgusted by him. I think, yeah, she, she just doesn't want to have to see him that way because it reminds her. Oh, this has happened so many times before, um, and also I don't like death. No, yes. no, no, no. It reminds her that she's a terrible fucking person. <laughs> <laughs> that that too, because I can imagine being alive for as long as she would, she would have to have some introflection at some point, being like, "What I'm doing doesn't seem think. right." <laughs> well, no, because 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 the, the most villainous villains, the most interesting villains, the ones that don't actually think they're villains, they think that they are right. doing something that is good. That, and I think and, she just thinks that she's loving these people, and then they disappoint her by not being the one right like she she tells john near the end that she thought it was going to be different that he was going to be the miracle that would kind of break this curse that so is denial. i think that's why she keeps bringing yeah. in new companions yeah right? but it's also because seeing them in this state every time reminds her that she's a stupid bitch <laughs> <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> 
<laughs> she literally does not love them to death. Well, yeah, yeah, and, and, and so she would rather not look at them, but keep them for her own mm-hmm. love and safety. But she can't look at them because it's like, all oh, right, I'm a horrible person that's dooming these people to this horrible existence. Right. She's almost like a serial killer, right? She keeps the tokens in the attic. Yeah, the tokens just their husks of a body. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, husk, that's such a gross word. <laughs> Yeah, so that's basically it. I mean, I love the imagery of someone like Catherine Deneuve carrying this oh this husk of a body into the elevator and then up through the attic because the elevator doesn't even go to the attic. So she then has to like negotiate another stairwell and another hallway. And then we're into like weird Hellraiser dream sequence territory where it's, yeah, the open yeah. attic and there's pigeons and there's mist and stuff. Okay, and the, the like, sound of okay. pigeon wings. Per- I-, I thought it was doves, actually. It's like, but, but nevertheless, bird wings flying around this mm-hmm. place. Um, also, I just I have this image of of David Bowie being like, "What's in the West Wing?" Like Beauty and the Beast, <laughs> and it's just the bodies of all of her dead lovers. <laughs> uh, we don't we don't go there. The West Wing is <laughs> off limits. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, that's basically the end of David Bowie in this movie, and then we move over to the Sarah portion of the film. So, uh, Sarah shows up at the house the next day. She wants to apologize for how she treated John. Miriam's already, baby. Oh, John, he's in Switzerland. Yeah. <laughs> sure he is in that condition he just hopped on a well, on a, an intercontinental flight i guess no i call my attic switzerland <laughs> <laughs> it's a neutral territory <laughs> so sarah leaves because she's not getting anywhere and then we introduce a new character who really doesn't play much of a role in this movie but uh lo and behold Dan Hedaya shows up as Lieutenant Allegreza. Right? Um, random. So very random. All, and I'm I'm thinking like he plays Tully in the Adams family, does he not? Yes. 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 Okay, so when I remember when I first saw him, I was like, it's Tully! And that's Oh, like, see, <laughs> for me, he'll always be Dick and Dick. Oh yes, that's true. Yep. <laughs> but I, I I will say though, this character not needed in this movie. No, it it feels like this is maybe something where when we read the book, this character will either have a more substantial part or uh, it'll just factor into the plot more. Something. But yeah, yeah. I mean, th- 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 which granted, I don't want a stupid murder investigation in this movie. No. I don't need it. Um, That is not what this movie is about. But yeah, this whole scene, it's like, OK, um, but we don't see him again until the very, very end of the movie. Mm hmm. I wonder if it's meant to imply, as you said, Jess, just that Miriam has to be a little bit more careful because the Popo are kind of poking around the residence. Yeah, that, and that's how I read it. It's just like, okay, she, her safe haven has been threatened now, so she needs to she needs to act quickly, and then eventually she's going to have to leave and move. Which is ironic because that's what Sarah does. Yeah, yeah. So she's and like, then, I need to get some fresh puss. Yeah. <laughs> And imagine Miriam doesn't stay in the same house of the lover, uh, the house that she lived in with one lover, and she just moves into another one. Can you imagine the neighbors? Hey, you always used to have that that guy, and then that girl went missing, and then all of a sudden you're shacked up with that new young hot girl. What's going on with you? <laughs> but she has you the same polyamorous? hair. You a bit of a swinger? But that new girl has the same hair as that guy that you once had that's not there anymore, so I'm really confused. <laughs> 
So, yes, uh, we're now full-time Sarah watchers. I do love this part where she's in the shower and she keeps thinking that she's hearing the phone ringing. Mm -hmm. Shitty Tom refuses to answer it and or the phone is not actually ringing. This is Miriam putting it in her head. But at night when they go to bed, Sarah is almost doing the same thing that John was doing where she can't sleep because she's just up thinking about things. She got in her head, literally. So she does end up going to see Miriam the next day, and she she even says to Miriam, "I don't know why I'm here." Oh, I I actually love that moment. Like she she you can tell she's trying to think of something to say, and it's like I don't know why I'm here. And she's like, "Oh, it's okay. Come in. Let me mm-hmm. let me fuck you." <laughs> More or less. Yeah. You're here because I want you in my bed. I willed it. <laughs> exactly. Literally put like you in enraptured by me now. So come. Mm-hmm. come to my bed with yeah. a mirror in it <laughs> so then basically miriam wines and dines not not quite literally but she she basically woos sarah by saying all of this could be yours like i've got some some sherry that you can splash on your tits and i've also got all of this like gorgeous real estate look at how amazing this place is so She's more or less saying, you know, hey, if you want to be with me, this is the kind of thing that you get. And then she starts to play Leo Delib's flower duet. And I love that the film makes a joke about this, you know. Isn't that a love song between two women? Hmm. I guess it is. Well, no, 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 no. No, she goes, is this a love song? Well, it's two women singing it. Well, it sounds like a love song. I guess it is. She <laughs> also, I have this fan machine over here, this wind machine. <laughs> <laughs> The power bill in this brownstone would be outrageous because we just have fans going all the time. So I will say that. So they they were in this scene. There were a few body doubles used in shots because Susan Sarin had just had a laparoscopy. It's one of those um, uh, surgeries where they have to stick some, a tube in your belly button to look at your gut. So she didn't want her stomach exposed in on camera. Um but nevertheless, uh, it was a closed set because apparently everyone on the film wanted to be in the room. And <laughs> Tony Scott was like, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's gross, guys. We don't do that. Yeah. But OK, back to the male gaze portion of this. I mean, like, we've had this discussion yeah. before. I, I, I you know, it, obviously it's not just male. It could be just as you said, uh, queer male, bisexual male, queer woman. Um, mm-hmm. I just... I, there's something, as I said earlier, so classy about the way that this is shot. None of this feels lurid. It is erotic and it is sensual. I don't, it, this doesn't feel porny to me. Well, this film is considered an erotic horror. Um, I saw that yeah. and I thought, wow, okay, I mean, how, how deep a cut is that? I was like, the expert. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's considered an erotic horror and I find that scene to be. It is very artsy, like mm-hmm. right up to the point, like even with the point of like she gets in the bed and there's a mirror and it reminds yes. me of a, there's an art piece out there of a woman with like a mirror and like a half clothed woman sitting in front of it. And I'm just like, that's gorgeous. Hmm. This is beautiful. Like the right. white gauze everywhere and it's very tender. Um It's hot. It's hot. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> No, it, it really She's like, is. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was drooling. I, I literally had to stop for a minute. I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I got the vapors. <laughs> well, it, it's funny because I feel like 17-year-old me would have told my mom, no, I'm just watching an artsy horror film if I had to tried to stay up late so that I could, you know, see nudity. But the reality is, it's like, this is tasteful to a degree that we don't often see in specifically horror movie sex scenes, right? Like, 
let's think of Friday the 13th, the remake, where we've just got that chick bouncing on top of the dude with her tits out. And she's like, ah, this feels so good. He's like, you got perfect nipple placement, baby. Your tits are stupendous. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, I recognize that that's a completely different subgenre yeah, of horror. Yeah. It's meant to be jokey and stupid. But, you know, this feels like, oh, we're making an art film that just happens to be horror for adults. Like, do we want to say elevated horror? Sure. But, but. even of the time, though, I mean, like, look, yeah, we, we, we've had the vampire lovers in the 60s, maybe mm-hmm. 70s. Um, So we've had lesbian vampires before. But even, I guess because this is American, it is a major studio film. Like, this, right. something about this scene, I'm just like, oh, it feels very progressive and almost taboo for the time period. Yeah. So I'm going to bring Michelle back in because she does speak specifically to the lesbian sex scene. She says the mise-en-scene for the lesbian love scene is awash with gauzy veils and flowing draperies shot in a hazy soft focus style. And that that's the other piece we haven't really mentioned. The soft focus is right. like over the top here. Mm-hmm. Their lovemaking takes place without the need for any male presence. Though Miriam is decidedly the seducer and sexual aggressor, there is nothing particularly masculine in her behavior or that of Sarah. Their embraces and kisses are passionately, breathtakingly woman-oriented. Very, rem- It reminds me very much like Daughters of Darkness. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With the kind of the love scene. Also, like, the, even going further back and thinking of Carmilla and how mm-hmm. Carmilla will approach her lover in the bed at night. So I don't find this scene gratuitous at all. I find it very beautiful, honestly. I, I really enjoy this, how this is filmed, particularly between a, two women and is in a vampire film. Because like we were saying earlier, a lot of other vampire lesbian movies are often the, the scenes are gratuitous. Like, well, mm-hmm. and, and that's why, I mean, look, I am not opposed to the term male gaze. It obviously exists. But what I'm asking people is to not just say, oh, a straight man did this. Therefore, it is male gazy. Right. Do, do a little bit more. Have media literacy. Like, yeah. like, look at it. Like, observe the scene, what is actually happening. And to me, this scene is not male gazy. Yeah, I mean, I think the term can definitely apply here because that is who tony scott is like when you look at who shot the film yes it is done through a male gaze but i think to do so diminishes the people who find the female form attractive which is not only men right like i i think we do a disservice to the queer viewers who might also be enjoying this like i always go back to nay's comment when yeah. we were joking about showgirls right where i was like oh this is so like exploitative and trashy and nay was like well i found it hot uh, well yeah, and, same here and, and that's the thing. It, it is literally a male gaze but it's not yes. quote unquote the male gaze well and yeah, exactly that. Because we default assume, therefore, that it is for a male gaze of the audience, yes. as though this movie is only intended for men. And I'm just like, okay, well, why would we arbitrarily decide that that is the benchmark? Exactly. And I mean, I know this is obviously like the high, the highlight of the film, but it is the most memorable part of the film, just given everything that we've discussed and everything that's involved in it. But I also don't want this film to be limited to just this scene because it is so much more than just this scene. I agree. Yeah. Now, I do want to throw a wrench into this, mm-hmm. not not for the sake of being a shit disturber, but because I I view this film 
not as an empowerment way, but I can definitely understand why queers would look at Miriam and say, I identify with her. She's powerful. She's sexual. She gets what she wants. Uh, she's afraid and, of being alone. Well, I mean, yeah, like she she definitely has negative elements to her. But I I guess I hadn't always, you know, I think of all of the queer monsters that we as queer audience members mm -hmm. have identified with and why there's a power to that. Mm -hmm. But I was interested to see that Harry M. Benchoff, the, the guy that we have quoted so often, particularly with some of the older films, he specifically categorizes the hunger as like a bad example of like the queer monster. Oh, wow. So, so oh. he says the hunger characterizes vampires as specifically homosexual or bisexual. This film has perhaps done much to cement into place the current social construction of homosexuals as unnatural, predatory, plague-carrying killers, even as they also even as they might also provide a pleasurable power view fulfillment fantasy for some queer viewers. I mean, because when did he write that book? Uh, it would have been, he was working on it in the 90s. 80s. Oh, oh, okay. See, that makes a bit more sense because here's the thing. I don't even disagree with what you just said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's a thing where it's in, in 2023 now, like we're, I mean, look, I, we're, we're in a much better place than we were in the 80s and 90s. Um, we're not this great, but we're doing good. Uh, <laughs> but well. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> we're doing better. We uh, were doing so well for a couple of years. And then the last couple of years yes. has been a bit of a backslide. But, but yeah, no, compared to like the the height of the AIDS crisis. Yeah, we're in a better place. Yes. But but I mean, I, I, everything you said is right. But again, it's like, well, I think maybe it, it seems less bad in 2023 than it would have in 1992 because mm -hmm. in 1992 it was like yeah we, we can't have any i'm sorry we can have negative portrayals of queer people but it's like that wasn't really what we want I, I i go back to um oh my god um oh basic instinct you know where it's like right Catherine Trammell to me is a very empowering figure but in the 90s we didn't want that representation mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so I can I can understand where Benchoff is coming from with that assessment. Yeah, no, I I agree. It I wanted to raise it because I I don't know. There's something so compelling about Miriam in this movie, mm -hmm. and when I read that, it it kind of took me by surprise because I did think of so many other characters where I was like, well, he doesn't come down so hard on those people, <laughs> yeah. but. I think specifically when we're talking about like vampire movies of the '80s, right? It's a hard sell. Yeah. 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 What is not a hard sell is dinner reservations at a restaurant where women just swim next to you. Okay, wait, I'm sorry, but but the, but the, but the, the match cut from the bite to mm -hmm. the steak getting cut is... It's gross. ...kind of awesome. <laughs> it's great, but disgusting. I wanted steak... So I watched this twice, because I watched it without a commentary and with a commentary, and both times I was like, fuck, I want a steak right now. <laughs> <laughs> Jess, aren't you a vegetarian, too? Yes, I'm vegan, so... <laughs> I want a vegan steak right now. <laughs> but that's okay, because then I'm just like, oh, it just, you know, to me, it goes back to my whole idea about cannibalism being like, okay, well, you just referenced the human body part, and then you just showed us mm -hmm. animal flesh. So, same yep. thing, cannibalism. Okay, cool. We're all, we're all moving on again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The hunger is, is pro-vegan. <laughs> uh, meat is murder. Yeah. 
Yeah. So Tom really lays into Sarah about this three-hour conversation that she had with a woman that she barely knows. And then just to kind of drive home how not great Sarah is feeling, we do get to watch her vomit all of this back up when they go home later on. Also, that was apparently Susan Strannan's first time vomiting on screen. Oh. Oh. Is that an IMDb trivia? <laughs> that, is a, that is a commentary trivia. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> she was like, yeah, this is my first time vomiting on screen. I tried to use the uh, egg wide and oatmeal trick. Oh. That's oh. disgusting. Mm. What I really appreciate about the scene, watching it again this time around, was we have two different things that we could interpret the scene with her having that conversation with Tom and then her constantly looking over at the bodies because mm-hmm. you're thinking, mm-hmm. Oh, she, the blood she's now churning. She's just thinking about the bodies as, you know, actual, like I'm going to, you know, eat them or something like that. But then I recognize I'm like, mm-hmm. she's only looking at female bodies. So yes. imagine. And so of course in my, cause of course, you know, as a, someone who was, who was coming out and stuff like that, being like having your first experience with a woman, being mind-blowing and then the next you're sitting here having dinner with your your partner and then you're just looking over and you're like just thinking about mm-hmm. it right like that her mind is like completely different because you just had this life-changing experience literally yes. literally a life-changing experience <laughs> <laughs> well at this point i think it's still a positive life-changing experience right mm-hmm. yeah she doesn't know what's going on with her yet yeah. she's not feeling well but she's at the same time too being like oh my god like and that that I'm not feeling well could just be like your nerves like oh my god I just had this experience with this this change all everything about me like my life Mm -hmm. right um and it's not until like when Tom is like you need to go see a doctor I remember being upset when he's like you need to see a doctor I'm like dude back off like she's not sick she's just queer (laughs) yes (laughs) okay but she is literally sick (laughs) she doesn't know that she doesn't know that yet (laughs) I will say one of the things I do appreciate about this is that getting infected doesn't make her hot like she was already hot Mm. she doesn't get more hot or anything like that but you mean like joe like physically she all of a sudden like her physical appearances is no longer like she's not glowing or has this like she you know she still looks like a really hot individual it's just now she's sick yeah like she doesn't get a movie makeover just because she's a vampire yeah Okay, so after this scene, yeah, we we run a blood test on Sarah, and then this is when her colleagues all kind of gang up on her. But we do hear that phrase where it's like, oh, it's a disease-resistant, inhuman strain of blood that you have in you. And it's like fighting for dominance. It's that inhuman, right? Like, you're like, oh, you have something inhuman running through your veins. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which is kind of fascinating if you do know the backstory from the novel, right? Where it's it's a little more alien. It is like a kind of properly otherworldly infection. Whereas in the course of this film we don't know that so it just feels like oh there's something just a little bit different mm-hmm. and then they and then when they're kind of like interrogating her about like okay well how did this happen stuff like that and they show her arm to show those bite marks and that's also where i get the idea of the addiction and drugs and stuff like that mm-hmm. too because that was also a fear right of sharing needles and stuff like that and it could cause uh, transmission yeah. um and so and we get that junkie kind of mentality later on yeah so because of all this sarah goes to miriam she gets really mad at her she tries to confront her physically and this is when miriam shows oh i'm actually quite strong so no that's not gonna work for you (laughs) but uh yeah miriam does say that she'll be back when she needs to feed because she's gonna go through it so this is where we do a kind of like addict you're going into withdrawal sequence 
Sarah goes out. She she doesn't look very stable on her feet. She's trying to hail a cab. She can't get someone to pick her up. She makes a phone call. She can't get a hold of Tom. I have a question. Where is Tom? Because she says she tries him at the lab and she tries him at home. And then when we see him making calls to try to find her, he's at home. But it's like, dude, where have you been? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> I think it's just like a, a weird gap in the yeah. film's logic. Yeah. But yeah. I was definitely like, Tom, you're shady. I don't trust you. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, I mean, she even gets mistaken. I think the intention is meant to be that she's mistaken for a sex worker when these two men, yeah. played by John Pacow and Willem Dafoe. Yes, William Man. Dafoe. <laughs> God. I, 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 one of those things, I, I've never, I, I love Willem Dafoe. I've never found him, but, like, particularly attractive. But, um. He looks cute here. Oh, my God. He's he looks so attractive. He's hot. He's hot <laughs> with that leather jacket here. His, like, Grease-style haircut. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These are dodgy dudes, for sure. <laughs> so she ends up going right back to Miriam because she's not feeling so hot. So Miriam puts her to bed. We see her shaking and sweating. And this is when Miriam says, well, I'll go out and get you someone to help you quell this hunger. So she returns with a man, played by James Aubrey, and then... I love again that this kind of comes of nothing because this dude never even makes it to Sarah. <laughs> Miriam just kills him in the elevator. I, I know. I was like, are you going to like bottle up his blood for it? No, no, no. She's just like, eh, I'm hungry. Yeah. And then she just calls <laughs> like, Sarah to her like telepathically or, or no, it no, she guess she's yelling, but it sounds like it's telepathically because it's so dreamlike mm. to be like, come, you are in your bed and you're like almost, I guess you feel like you're dying, but come, I have food for you like a couple stories down. Just... <laughs> yeah, but of course that doesn't happen because Tom turns up, and when he sees what's become of Sarah, he tries to comfort her. But uh... and she is like, "Leave!" And he's like, "No, leave!" And she's like, "No, all right, <laughs> I'll eat you." Oh my god! And, mm -hmm. and Miriam is cold. She's just like, "Yeah, Sarah's here. She's upstairs." And you're like, "Damn!" Second door yeah. on the left. Yeah, literally, like, like, damn, you are cold. She's just like, "Yeah, I'll take care of itself. I'm gonna go sit down in my piano." <laughs> <laughs> but it's not unlike what um dandridge does with charlie and amy in fright night because he he oh, like yeah. waits for him to go find her yeah it's true because i i think it's one of those two birds with one stones kind of thing right like mm. i'll get rid of your ex and i'll do so by feeding you so yeah, yeah. <laughs> everybody wins in this situation <laughs> i do love that moment though that that shot where we hear the struggle like we don't see what happens to tom because it doesn't matter we know so we're just watching miriam as she's looking at the chandelier shaking and hearing the sounds of the struggle and it cross cuts with her presumed first time killing someone back in ancient egypt mm. yeah but I just think, you know, this is really effective nonverbal storytelling. Like, you don't need to tell us that Tom's dead. We know. And then Sarah shows up and she's covered in blood. Oh, and she I, looks happy. That yeah. shot when she walks out with like, the blood down her chin is so cool. Yeah. Ooh. I like that too. Is it bad to say that she still looks sexy? No, yeah. Nope. Vampires are sexy. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so this has got to be what, like, an hour and 15 minutes into the runtime. Oh, yeah. Like, we're, we're almost done. Yeah. <laughs> so this is when Miriam gives us the rules to this world of vampirism in the movie. So as you said, Jess, uh, she needs to feed one day in every seven. She will sleep uh, six hours in every 24. She will be young forever. And eventually, she will come to love Miriam the way that Miriam loves her. Which, bitch, you... I, <laughs> you've known her for, like, a week. <laughs> 
not even i think it's been like maybe 36 hours well and that's why we're the book where it's like oh like she's been following her for yet mm. years like that makes mm-hmm. more sense but in this it's like no you're just a bunch of u-haul lesbians <laughs> <laughs> not wrong and also the way she introduces all this to sarah she's like i am damned to live forever so i'm gonna bring other people on this journey with me and you're like oh right <laughs> I feel like at a certain point, at a certain point, if I were Miriam, I would kill myself at a certain point. I mean, I think you would, you would become, uh, oh shit, what's the Brad Pitt character from Interview with the Vampire? Louis, yeah. Yeah, you, you would just get tired of it all, right? There would be no new pleasures and you would realize, well, this just isn't fun anymore. Yeah, but he chooses to keep living, which was stupid. Well, I mean, Louis is a, <laughs> He's a sad sack. Annoying <laughs> character. Like, I guess if it's really hard to kill your like if it's really hard to kill yourself and you have, and we all have essentially like a fear of death and i guess even for like mm-hmm. vampires they they essentially a fear of death but yeah sure. but like but when you but when you go around and say well i'm damned to live like this forever i'm like well you could fix that you you could just let someone off you but right. and, and if you're worried about going to hell if you die by suicide i mean I, you probably killed enough people to you know you're going to hell you're no matter going what. there anyway <laughs> yeah and the fact you're going to the bad place and the fact that you keep bringing people on this journey with you and you keep saying mm-hmm. i will love you forever 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 and oh forever and you will eventually learn to love me forever and you're like wait Oof. Like, and Sarah knows this. Like, Sarah met John. She's got suspicions mm-hmm. yep. of what's happening around here. <laughs> Sarah's like, what's in the West? What's in the West Wing? And also, didn't you just have that fuck boy for like 200 years, 24 hours ago? Right? Like, I just saw him age really fast in two hours. So is that going to happen to me? <laughs> right. Yeah. Serial monogamist. We were like, oh, well, that guy's done. Move on to the next one. You're like, oh. It's a wild. I mean, presumably Sarah does think all of these things because she goes for a kiss and then she stabs herself in the neck. But then but then Miriam's like, oh, honey, that's not going to work. <laughs> I do love that Miriam doesn't even try to change her mind. She's like, well, up into the attic with you now, too. <laughs> like, she can't be alone for, like, a day. <laughs> no. Uh, honestly, the the thesis of this movie is codependence. Yes, 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 Miriam, yes, yes, yes. girl, you got to learn to travel on your own. You know what? Like, go out and just be by yourself. Find out who is the real Miriam. Some real self care and R and R. Yeah, mm-hmm. especially for someone like Sarah. Like, she's clearly a woman of the '80s. She's out there for her career. She wants to be successful. She's yes. independent. She doesn't even like she. She's affirmative with her her boyfriend tom i don't think she will appreciate being in a codependent relationship for the next 200 (laughs) years sarah's like "Ooh, i didn't really sign on for this sorry okay so so then explain to me what happens here so she brings sarah up and then all of a sudden these husks that can't Mm -hmm. move bust out of their coffins and kill her ass you betcha yeah okay that's it (laughs) i think it's mostly it's something to do with the fact that they are sick and tired of miriam pulling this shit right like she's deposited two new bodies in the space of 24 hours and then they all recognize oh she's just gonna go out and find someone new again so i i get the impression this is very much a pent-up ex revenge scheme Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. But it also feels like an old Tales from the Crypt style finale, though, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, yeah. oh, no, I'm the person who caused my own demise when all of my exes come back as Huss and kill me. Well, and it's funny. This is probably not an intentional homage. But um, having just caught up on Apple TV's Servant, uh, her fall mm-hmm. down the stairs reminds mm-hmm. me a lot of a certain character's fall down the stairs in that season three finale. Yeah. 
even the way it shot like <laughs> oh man i i talked about alice's death sequence as being exquisitely beautifully shot watching Catherine Deneuve fall in slow motion as she screams down what appears to be 12 to 15 stories <laughs> of this house it is so stunning to watch no wait 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 are these the so these stairs it's the 12 to 15 flights of stairs to the elevator no i i think it's from the attic all the way down to the bottom it's just that the elevator only goes, goes to so the far up yeah. top floor okay gotcha that makes more sense no idea why <laughs> movie <laughs> sure yeah so they attack her and this is always what got me confused in the movie is that we think she's dying like we know mm-hmm. she's aging and stuff like that and you Things that she's dead because you see everyone else die. So we're like, oh, okay. When yes. she dies, they can all yeah, die. Yeah, they all die. Exactly. But, but no. no. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, do we think it's just because Sarah, like, hasn't completed the transformation yet? No, no, no. Okay. Because here's the thing. This was supposed to be the end of the fucking movie. This was oh. supposed to be it. Okay. So okay. the scene of Sarah. Sorry, so we got one more scene of uh, Dan Hedaya coming back and he's like, oh, like, where's. Yeah. I, I got to talk to her. And oh, she's gone. Oh, yeah. They're, they're selling the building. Yeah. Everybody's dead. Okay. Got it. Yeah. The final scene of Sarah on the balcony was added mm-hmm. at the studio's behest with a oh. view to leaving the film open ended because they wanted sequels to this movie before it flopped. And really, yeah, yes. On the Blu-ray, Sarandon talks about it, and she goes, she she expresses regret. She goes, the thing that made the film interesting to me was the this question of, would you want to live forever if you were an addict? But as the mm-hmm. film progressed, the powers that be rewrote the ending and decided that I wouldn't die. So what was the point? All the rules that we'd spent the entire film delineating that Miriam lived forever and was indestructible, and all the people that she transformed eventually died, and that I killed myself rather than be an addict were ignored. Suddenly, I was kind of living. She was kind of half dying. Nobody knew what was going on, and I thought that was a shame. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly Stereo how I interference. Yeah, I feel about that because, like, the movie ends so perfectly. Like, okay, cool. Miriam's dead. Everyone's dead. The film's over. And then, yeah. All of a sudden, you see that she's alive, and you're asking yourself, like, well, how does she live then? Yeah, it underwrites the entire logic of the film, And then they show right? us that yes. Miriam is now locked away in her own coffin. So we're like, okay, well, now mm-hmm. Miriam's still... So shouldn't all of her lovers still be alive? Well, and it's like, uh, how, how did they switch roles? Like, how, how did that even happen? Now, granted, I, there is a bit of a good-for-her ending in this. Yeah. Yeah, I like the poetic justice of the idea of Miriam being trapped in a box forever. Yes, but, but it doesn't that, make any sense. No. And it seems... <laughs> That, like Sarah's character goes the more polyamorous route and has two lovers at the same time instead of just mm-hmm. one. <laughs> I did like that. <laughs> but I still don't know how she feels about her life given what no. we had just seen yes, in the last exactly. scene. Yeah. Yeah, it almost would have been better if it had been set further in the future so we could know that she's had a hundred years to mm. think about it, right? But, yeah. of course... <laughs> she's in Blade Runner. <laughs> she's in Blade Runner. <laughs> she's just wearing, like, a transparent trench coat, and she's got a boa constrictor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But she does look, like, at the end, like, she looks... What's the word? Like, you know, sad and forlorn and like, oh, yeah. I've, I've made a horror, like, I can't die now. I made a horrible choice. And I was like, but that doesn't make any sense. So I'm glad to know that that was studio interference because, yeah, I, I particularly don't like that last bit of the film. I completely forgot this even happened. To even have Sarandon be like, yeah, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I sign on and uh, you know what it is. She didn't read the fine print and the asterisks at the bottom of the contract. Uh, but I, I, can you imagine like a series of sequels for this? I could. I mean, you talked about it kind of as oh, yeah. your proposed television spinoff. 
And well, the book does have sequel does have sequels. Oh, that's right. Oh, yes. I didn't know that. It, has, it follows Miriam as she gets a new companion, right? I don't. I actually just discovered that they had sequels too, and so I was just like, "Oh, it's two sequels: The Last Vampire from 2001 and The Littlest Dream, a dream up for the vampire life in 2003." So hmm. I'm curious to see where it goes from a 1981 film about Miriam Blaylock to all of a sudden this almost like when I, and anytime I see the word "The Last Vampire," I always think of the Christopher Pike novel, and I'm just like, "Because yes. that's the last vampire I want to read about." So now I'm like, "What is this sequel about? Are we carrying on with Sarah? Are we carrying on with Miriam?" Is it a, one of Miriam's lives, like one of her lovers? So I do know for sure that at the end of the first novel, okay. Miriam kills Sarah. Oh. And the second book follows her. Okay. Interesting. That is interesting. See, now, now I do want to read this. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> well, nevertheless, that is how the movie ends. And that is The Hunger. So both of you. Actually, I, uh, Jess, first you. Uh, any final thoughts on this film? So many. I really appreciate this film a lot because it is a different take of vampirism. It's particularly coming out in the 1980s where, like you said earlier, we had so many films like Fright Night and Lost Boys where, you know, it was fun to be a vampire and you're always dealing with uh, male vampirism. But I love seeing films that deal with female vampirism and relationships and all the allegories that's in this film dealing with loneliness, aging, the HIV, you know, opening up your sexuality, and also just identity. Like, every time I watch this film, I see something new, and I really appreciate it, and I think it's I think it's earned its kind of cult status in the queer community over the years, and I think it takes different perspectives to keep reviewing it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am... Um, I, I just as shocked that I liked this movie as much as I did. I, I love the new, I guess to me, new take on vampires. I love the queer content. I understand the style over substance, but again, there is enough substance here, especially on a second viewing where I'm like, there's right. like, maybe the movie isn't projecting it out there, but it's very much in every frame of this yeah. movie. Yeah. I I feel the same way as the pair of you. I do feel like the more interested perspective of female vampirism, as opposed to some of the earlier iterations that we had seen, which were a little bit more titillating and sensational. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that. And it does often feel like we're more prone to seeing like male vampires being predators and stuff. So this is interesting to watch a, a bad female vampire who is also incredibly sexy and kind of relatable in the fact that she's a bit of a garbage human being (laughs) (laughs) and while i'll acknowledge that the end of the film doesn't satisfy any of us i do want to give the last word to michelle so i've quoted this person several times over the course of the recording but i thought this was an interesting take on the finale so sarah's position is not unlike that of many lesbians and radical feminists in the 1980s she lives off the grid in a world of her own creation because there is no place for her in the culture from which she came she can only exist as a renegade a shadowy outcast who resides in a twilight world oh yeah i just thought that that was an interesting way of framing it because there's other parts of that piece that talks about how basically there wasn't a place for female spectators so the idea of a feminine gaze or a queer gaze was often negated by the fact that we didn't have those people writing about film or reviewing films in the 80s and then particularly the way that we wanted to talk about the male gaze and how it was like all oppressive and that kind of stuff it's like well so what happens to sarah is kind of what happens to queers and women's (sighs) 
Well, that's depressing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> happy, happy, happy. On happy the hunger. That note. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, before we announce what we're covering next week, I just thank you for coming on to talk about this and let everyone know where can they find you on social media? Uh, they can find me under the Spencers of Horror. So we're the Sp- Spencers of Horror on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And then my own personal social media is at Spectral Jess on both Instagram and Twitter. And you can find our podcast, our Spit on Your podcast, on any uh, podcasting app that you can find us on we're going to be recording our new episode which will be on necrophilia female necrophilia where we'll be talking about mm. necromantic 2 and the film kissed and so that will be out at the end of the month I'm like I was Canadian like well, content. Yes. necrophilia. I was like neon demon and dead girl are my two like necrophilias. Oh my goodness! Wow. <laughs> Kelly <laughs> has banned me from seeing Dead Girl. She's like Jessica, you're never allowed to watch Ooh. that film. <laughs> it is extremely upsetting. It's a rough movie, but I would argue worth watching. But yes, <laughs> okay. okay. You will have lots of interesting conversations. Also, you will never touch another like male penis. Yeah. <laughs> Well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers. Shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. Go to our YouTube channel to check out our interviews with various horror filmmakers. Uh, if you want to chat with other listeners, please join our Facebook Horror Queers group. If you want to show us some love, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. We are now in April, so go sign up and you can get 233 hours of extra content. Uh, new episodes this month include a discussion on films with make or break endings, the latest remake of The Children of the Corn, the new horror comedy Renfield, Amazon Prime's Beyonce-ish horror series Swarm, and an <laughs> audio commentary on Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses for its 20th anniversary. Oh my god. <laughs> I know, so much. But stop that. <laughs> Joe. Yes. What are we talking about next week? A, a new film for me, by the way. Yeah, it's actually a new film for me as well. We we tease that we're sticking in vampires because we said last week that we're doing two weeks of them. We're going to go even further into the past, Chase, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Ganja and Hess. Yeah, this is... I know nothing about this movie except for the brief tidbits that you and some other guests... Have, I think maybe Zena Dixon told us about this or talked to us about this. Most likely. It's a very important uh, horror noir. Yes, there we go. So yeah, everyone, uh, until next week with Ganja and Hess, we can cross out The Hunger. Indeed. And cross out horror queers. Horror queers.